All right, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Uh, we're continuing our journey through the Lord's Prayer this morning, and these are some of the preliminary comments that Christ is making about uh, what our mindset should even be about prayer before he gives us any sort of uh, specific instruction as to exactly what it is we should be praying or, or a guide for us to be able to pray. And so last week we, we learned uh, one way not to pray. So what's one, what was the way last week that we learned that we shouldn't pray? like a hypocrite. And what's a hypocrite? I mean, anybody know a hypocrite? Have you ever seen one? Ever? Uh, they're not just in office, by the way. They're, they're in us. And so we, we struggle, don't we, oftentimes with motivation. Because really the issue of a hypocrite is someone who wants for people to believe that they are something that they are not. So they can get the benefits of being believed to be that something, though they don't have to do the hard work of actually becoming that thing. Does that make sense? And so these folks want people to believe that they are religious and pious and known by God. And really their concern is not to at all be known by God. Who do they want to be known by? Man. They want man to exalt them. They want man's empty praise. So for those of you who know anything about um, how fickle the public can be, why in the world would we ever sell ourselves out to something that is so fleeting. Again and again and again, the examples are myriad. I, I, I don't know that the Lord could put it on bigger display than he has. Um, it is an absolute fool's bargain to go after the empty praise of man because as quick as it comes, it leaves even quicker, doesn't it? Um, for those of you who have in, are involved in any sort of performance-driven thing, it's not what you have done in the past. It's what have you done for me lately. And so no one cares about the body of work that you've built up. It's just what have you done recently. And that's, just, that's only, I think, getting worse as time goes by. We have less and less a sense of the historical. We're becoming more and more ahistorical and momentary, which is scary because that which is momentary has no lasting effect at all. And so here, Christ is trying to help us understand very deeply what it means. And remember, in contrast to the hypocrite, whom should we pray like? We should pray like the one who goes into their prayer closet and forgets that the world is even there. And, and really, one who sees God as their only audience, the only one of import to hear what it is that they are saying to him. Now, as we said, was Christ saying you can't pray in public? Well, no, because he, he would be violating his own truth. He prayed in public. It, it was really more of a mindset and motivation than it was a specific locale or geography of instruction. See, he was saying you should pray as if you were in a closet, no one seeing you. God is your only audience. So the motivation straight away, so he's laying a very firm foundation. Your motivation should be that God is the one who is hearing you and the only one who matters as to what he thinks about what you are saying. Now this morning, he's going to continue in that. and He's going to give us another person by whom we should not pray like. And so we're going to see in these two short verses um, one thing that we're not to pray like and a tr another truth that is absolutely critical for us to understand how it is we should begin to pray, even before we approach the Lord's Prayer itself. So remember, one of the questions that we had from last week is, is, is prayer negotiable? Is prayer a negotiable aspect of the Christian life? Well, yeah, I mean, we're smart enough to say no, right? 
However, if I were to follow you around, which I won't do, by the way, just in case you're concerned about that, um, if I followed you around, would I come to the conclusion that prayer is a negotiable aspect of your Christian life, or would I come to the conclusion that it was a critical aspect? And here's the truth. It's not me who follows you around. It's the spirit who is within you. God already knows whether or not you believe it to be negotiable. And you should not so cheapen grace as to hide behind it and say, yeah, but he knows we're just old, sorry sinner. You know, we're just goofing off, messing around. You know how it is. Is that a good excuse? It isn't, isn't it? it? There's not. And remember, we said that if Christ, who is perfect, who knows God more intimately than any of us ever could, if his example is to pray, pray regularly, pray often, and to pray uniquely in times of crisis as one who is utterly broken by the truth, then how much more should you and I, who are far, far, far from perfect and are far from truly knowing the Lord our God, Shouldn't his example be that which moves us to the same behavior? And yet, confessionally, year after year, we have the same two things that we struggle with. I, you know, I struggle with my quiet time. I struggle with reading the Bible. I struggle with prayer. Where do we grow? Where is maturity in this? And why do we wonder that we're in the situation that we're in? Because if we were to read our Bibles, we would notice that something very interesting is a pattern, both in the Old and the New Testament. And Peter said it well. Where does judgment begin, Bible scholars? Which house? In the house of the Lord, not in the culture. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Why? Well, that's a tougher question now, isn't it? And I don't know that I necessarily know the answer. But I do know it's true because as I was reading in Deuteronomy and as I was reading in Isaiah as a companion to that, I'm seeing that the Lord is saying to his people, even before they enter into the promised land, he says, you are going to divorce me. You are going to cheat on me and I'm going to have to deal with you. And notice from our journey in Habakkuk, where did judgment begin? He killed the Chaldeans first, right? To make sure they wouldn't mess with his people. No, they were the instrument of judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't get to them eventually because, again, if you read Isaiah, he does come round to the Babylonians if they don't come round to him. But it begins in our house. And how often do we skip us and move on to something else? How often are we not willing to examine ourselves and deal with the darkness that lurks within us and all of the ways in which we have failed in even the simplest of tasks? The world will know who you are by the love that you have for one another. Wait a minute, not, you don't mean the gossip we have for one another? Because <laughs> I can do that. What do you mean, the, the way in which I ignore hospitality as if it were optional? What, what do you mean, the way in which I, I see giving as not an aspect of worship? See, we've got some issues, and this isn't just unique to Christ's community. I just mean as a whole, we, we, we need to be willing to examine ourselves first. And so even in what Christ is telling us not to be and how he's teaching us how to pray, he's teaching us to deal with ourselves first. The primary problem is not outside the church. That, that which is outside the church is being utterly consistent to what it has always been and what it will always be, antithetical to the, to, to the faith. It's what's inside the church that has the true potentiality to change to then begin to have an impact outside of the church. 
And so, it cannot be a negotiable aspect of our Christian lives. We have to grow in this. And I am numbered among you. Confessionally, it has been my Achilles heel as well. So as we come to this this morning, we now have to ask a second, which I think is equally tough question. And this may grate on some of you, and, and, and if it does, uh, I'd love to talk to you some about it. And remember, this doesn't cover every nuance and nook and cranny. But what are some effective prayer techniques and methods? Let me warn you, it's a trick question. How many books do you have on effective prayer techniques? How many have you read and you finished like the book of Praying Life? I read it. Was totally moved by it. It, it just, I just killed me as a parent. This guy is so much better than I am. And I read it, and it has not done one thing to change my prayer life. Now, I'm not blaming Miller for it. It's me. I've read E.M. Bounds. I, I've read, I, I've read tons of books on prayer. We're reading Keller's book on prayer. We're reading. I mean, we, we've we've covered the basis, but it just at some point we just gotta we we gotta do it because Scripture tells us to, not because some technique or some method. Finally, if maybe if we could just boil it down to an acronym, we've done that. Acts. It's a great acronym. I abandoned it as quickly as I abandoned everything else. I'm not saying that techniques and methods are bad, so don't hear me say that. What I am saying is that none of those things will actually make prayer effective. It is a fool's bargain to think that it's an issue of technique and method and not heart. Listen at what Eugene Peterson says about this issue in in his book called Tell It Slant. The oldest and most implacable enemy in the practice of prayer, listen, is depersonalization. What did he just say? What he just said was, the oldest and most implacable enemy of prayer is to make it not about a relationship. When you depersonalize something, you're eliminating the relational aspect. And he goes on, turning prayer into a technique, using prayer as a device. In our technology-saturated culture, we frequently request help by asking, how do I pray? Or even worse, how do I pray effectively? This question distorts what is fundamentally a personal relation into an impersonal technique. God is conceived as an idea or a force or a higher power. Prayer is reduced to an exercise in control. If I can just get into the right mood and get into the right words in the right order, I can get God to do what I want or get what I need. That's tough. Because we're guilty, aren't we? We've all thought it. If I could just, I mean, I would pray if I could just get in the right mood. If I could just, if my kids would just shut up for a second, I could pray. I mean, I, I would be so holy if, if the Lord would just strike my kids silent like one hour every single day and they didn't have any needs. The holiness that would come off of me, the world, would not they wouldn't even know what to do. We would have no problems. It would be beautiful. Um, If the Lord would just get my spouse to do the thing I asked him to do so I wouldn't have to worry about that. Instead, I could focus on the Lord and prayer. I mean, we we do it, don't we? we? We've got it in spades. And we... And this is where this really struck me is that we... I think we fundamentally don't understand prayer. 
Prayer is not a means of acquisition. That is our capitalistic tendencies creeping into the frame. Prayer is not a means of moving God as if he were busy somewhere and just needed you to grab the hem of his garment and yank it your way. Prayer is the language of relationship. It is to know God and be intimately known by God. It is not a technique. It is not a method. It is not a means of manipulation. Now, having said all that, I will say this. You will have to do some spiritual spade work in the power of the Spirit to discover where you've gone awry of this. And I'm telling you, it's not going to be easy because I've been working through it myself. And some of the stuff that is churned up is terrifying. There's been days where I've stopped and gone, hey, do I call the elders and tell them I'm disqualified? Because this is awful. I am horrible. And I don't hide behind cheap grace on this either. It's only grace that delivers me in that and says, no, grow and continue. The command is still to grow. And so we must fundamentally recognize that this is not, prayer is not a technique for us to manipulate God. And so let's see Matthew chapter 6, 7. This is exactly what Christ is about to say to us. If you would hear God's word this morning. Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, he's pointing out a particular group of people known as Gentiles, meaning that they didn't have the law, they didn't have all these things to understand, and frequently their interaction with their many false gods would be if you just were loud enough, if you were just frequent enough, if you just said enough of the right incantation, because it's all magic anyway, right? If you just strung together the right set of things... These impestuous and fickle gods would turn our way. That's what's interesting as um, I had a chance to talk more to Vijay over lunch is he talked about one of the unique aspects of the gospel within Hindu culture is that God is so utterly unique from Brahma and the 9,000 or 100,000 other gods they have because he is the same and unchanging and not tempestuous. And he is not wooed by activity and then wooed back the other way. His is a consistent way. That coming from one who had been a Hindu, grown up a Hindu, and sees it having an impact on Hindu culture. So here the Gentiles, much in the same way, think if you, just, if you just put enough words together, then God would turn your way. Let me give you an example. And if you do this, let me, let me first say this. I don't know of anybody at Christ Community Church that does this, so I'm not singling you out because I know you do it. <laughs> All right, so I'm, not, I'm guilty of that sometimes, but not this time. All right, so I've heard people pray like this, and I know they mean well. I also want to say that. But, but think about it, and I'm going, to, I'm going to give you what it sounds like, and then I'm going to change the name. Father God, I just, Father God, I just want you to be here today with us, Father God. Father God, this is the Bible. Father God, it is your word. Father God, I just want you to move among your people. Father God. Now, let me try that again. Stephanie Knapper, Stephanie Knapper, I appreciate you living on a farm. Stephanie Knapper, I appreciate you bringing your family today. Stephanie Knapper, Stephanie Knapper. Who talks to each other like that? So even in that, we are suggesting that this is, not, this is not relational, it's incantational. 
that if you just heap together enough phrases about God, if you say enough heavy terms, you can move him. Because that's what he likes to hear, right? Because he speaks English. Um, and so, so we are guilty of doing this in a, a range of very, very subtle ways. And also, just people who pray really fast as if, like, God, like, you got two seconds. I mean, it's got to go ticker. You got to get it on the ticker, get it before God, and it's moving, it's gone. We don't, we, again, think about how we, how we converse with those we love and how much more even greater to the Lord our God that we should give him time and space and we should speak truth and honestly and we should recognize by doing so how much he loves us. See, this is someone talking to someone they don't know. Listen to how R.T. France, um, in his book, The Gospel of Matthew, he's a New Testament scholar, he says it so briefly and so beautifully. He says, so instead of a trusting father to fulfill their needs, they think they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them. Let me read that again. So instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, they think they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them. Is that how we pray? Are we badgering a reluctant deity who already is not a good father who longs to give good gifts to his children? Now, did I just drift into prosperity gospel? No. Not in the worst way. But to suggest that the Lord doesn't love to bless his children is insanity. Because he does. And he does it in different ways. And that's why the church is called to rejoice when one rejoices and weep when one weeps. We, we are called to love the fact that any one of us could flourish. And that flourishing, if that flourishing is occurring in the life of a true Christian, it is going to radiate and affect everyone around them, including you. So their flourishing is your flourishing, and your flourishing is their flourishing, our flourishing. And so Christ straight away is saying that the Lord is not someone you can manipulate. Now, I know what you may be thinking if you're a little bit wicked like me. You're considering, but what about the verse where he says the persistent widow goes to the judge and because of her persistence, he answers. Didn't God just say keep knocking? Actually, that story is a little different than that. It's if a wicked judge would respond to a persistent widow, how much more your loving father who knows you. He's not telling you to behave as if he is a wicked judge. That doesn't make a lick of sense. He's saying recognize that if a wicked judge would do something for someone, how much greater does God the Father who knows you because he formed you and knew the totality of the number of your days from the beginning. He knows even the words that could form upon your tongue before they do. Now why is that good news? Because some of the words we form on our tongue we ought to be warned about before we say them. Praise God that he knew, knows them and that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 happens to be true that he can warn us. I can't tell you how many times right before I say something real dumb, there's this moment where the spirit kind of pauses and says, you might want to think about that. Now, I've gotten better at listening despite what some of you may think. And so it's like I tell my wife, but you don't know what I didn't say. <laughs> so 
let's go back to the question of effectiveness. So what is it exactly that makes prayer truly effective? Is it technique? What is it? God our Father does. Because he's the one who answers those prayers. And we're going to see in just a moment how he, before we even can utter what it is we need, is already moving to provide. So if you would, turn to verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. As Christ again says, Do not be like them, meaning the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now what are the implications of all that was just said? Well, one, using the term father means that we are his children. And so that means that all of the promises that are available to a child of God are available to us in toto. And I have to be honest with you, I don't often think like that. I'm guessing you probably don't either. But we ought to. We ought to recognize that God the Father, he already knows us so intimately that he knows exactly what we need before we ask, and he's already moving to provide for it. Let me give you an example. When we were selling our house in Macon, um, we got down to the week of closing. Thus, you're going to see why my cynicism on this thing grows. <laughs> we get down to the week of closing, and sewage begins to back up into the house. If you know anything about houses, that's bad. That's just bad. And we had a guy come out and look, and his first opinion was, well, your pipes in the backyard have completely collapsed. There, there, there is no piping. It's just holes in the ground. And I don't even know how it hadn't been worse than this. That doesn't sound cheap to you, does it? Didn't sound cheap to me either. And he said, it's going to be about a $6,000 fix. We're going to have to cut up the driveway. And we had already bled out on this house as it was. And we're just watching any sort of hope for profit to help pay off school loans just dwindling. And so I swallowed hard and I said, okay, but and I said, Susan, this is what we got to do. We got to take care of this for them. We got to do it well. Well, a good friend of mine who runs a company called Sellers Mechanical in Providence is, happened to be in Macon, not happened, but was in Macon providentially to build the Como tire plant. What was interesting is they had about two weeks to kill with all this heavy equipment. But I, so I don't know about you, guys sitting around with nothing to do with heavy equipment is dangerous, isn't it? And so he said, I'll tell you what. He said, they, ain't, they don't have anything to do. I, I, we know how to fix this kind of stuff. I'll send them by there. I said, well, I said, hold on a second before you do. Is it more than 6000 for you to do it? He said, no, 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 no. It'll, it'll be cheaper than that. So they go by and they fix it. And it's, they did a great job. And in fact, found a worse problem than what the other guy found. And thank goodness they did. Because had that guy fixed the problem we thought we had, we'd have just had another $6,000 problem that would have had to been dug up. So he gets finished, and, and I, I call him. I said, hey, Walt, how much do we owe you? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. If you and Susan have another kid, we'll take it. <laughs> I said, well, you're not going to get paid. <laughs> it's a good deal for you. And so he did it for free. Why? Because the Lord was already moving to get the bid that Walt would get you see how all of the, this wasn't just a snap decision. There was, there was a bidding process some two years ago. There was all kind of things to orchestrate it all the way down to this moment that the Lord was fashioning. Now, for those of you who are slightly wicked like me, you would probably push against that and say, well, but what about all the other stuff he don't do squat about? Well, I don't have any answers for that. I just don't. And I have questions just like you about some other things. 
But I'm thankful he took care of that one in his own timing. And I've lived long enough to see that he actually, it resolves, everything I've ever questioned resolves. And so I've lived long enough to be patient in faith and not let the questions dominate my relationship or change how I pray to him. So what Christ is telling us is that God knows us so intimately that he knows exactly what we need. Think about this. Of the people that you have relationships with, who do you see yourself as being closer to? Those who know what you like and what you need or those who make sure you know what they like and what they need? You're closer to those who know what you like and what you need and who are willing to sacrificially serve you in such a way. We have a creator God who is exactly like that. Who is already before we can even form the petition is moving and orchestrating and doing. Not in the way that we would choose always. Not in the way that we would orchestrate or design but in the way that he would because it is what ultimately and this is hard for me to hear myself say ultimately it is what is best for us in the grand mystery of his providence. And it doesn't mean that we have to have that all tidy and neat right now. But like Habakkuk, we should stand our watch waiting for the answer in faith. And so, to have a God like this is a beautiful thing. And this is why, one of the reasons that we saw in question 98, that it wasn't, prayer is not about a list of petitions. See, what this beautifully does is it sets us free to relate to the Lord our God. How many of you like to hang out with people that all they do is ask you for help and stuff? Is that a relationship? It's not, is it? You get tired of those people. You get tired of them hounding you that all they want is something from you because it just drains you dry. Well, why would we think God would be any different? And what's beautiful about him is he already knows it. And as if we were to read on in the Sermon on the Mount, he says very clearly, you don't have to worry about food and clothing. I've taken care of the basic stuff. You are set free to display my beauty and to flourish in a dark and broken world. To be priests, a kingdom of priests. Amen? So, this is what John Calvin has to say about it. He says, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in mediating or meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from the, their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. In a word, that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. See, prayer is not about us lassoing God and moving him. Prayer is about our desires and wills being formed and bent toward his, which are far greater than ours. As C.S. Lewis says, our problem is not that we indulge too much, we indulge far too little on things that are killing us. See, we have this morning this banquet table set before us. I know, I get it. It's a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice. How can I call such a thing a banquet table? Because of what it represents. And so often we're content to just play in the mud and eat mud pies while there's this great banquet of feast behind us. 
And we think we're getting away with something. We think we're really doing it upright. Really sticking it to the man on this one. And no, we're not. See, it is us who should be shaped and formed into his will. So the question is, who is it that knows what you need and moves to provide it before you can say anything about it? Is your spouse this amazing? Now don't, this rhetorical, please don't answer. My wife is amazing, but she's not this amazing. And I'm too selfish to even come close. And so it is God alone who moves and knows us so deeply, so it behooves us to know him. It behooves us to relate to him in such a way that we are changed for the better. Amen? And that is the heart of prayer. And if we don't understand that, then all we'll do is get tangled up in reciting the same old words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and it will have no meaning relationally whatsoever at all. Is that what Christ is teaching us how to do? No, much more. He's teaching us to relate to God our Father in ways that will be a blessing beyond anything we could comprehend. So as we close out the sermon this morning, there's three things that we should learn from this. Very simply, one, prayer is not rhetoric. It's not. It's just, it's not rhetoric. Don't treat it as such. Two, prayer is not a technique by which we can control or manipulate God. It's not. It's not something that we withhold from him in order to get him. Lord, if you would bless me, I, I, might, even, I might come talk to you once in a while. Like, you're that important. But thirdly, God knows us so intimately that he is already moving to meet our needs before we can even say what they are. I didn't know I had a plumbing problem three years ago when the bidding for the Como tire plant went in. I didn't know lots of things years ago when the Lord was already moving and orchestrating and bringing things to bear. Praise God that he does. Praise God that he loves me and knows me that deeply. And the same for you. Let me close this sermon, at, uh, the sermon with this quote from Frederick Buechner um, from a little book called The Magnificent Defeat. He says, In honesty... You have to admit to a wise man that prayer is not for the wise. It's not for the prudent nor for the sophisticated. Instead, it, prayer, is for those who recognize in the face of their deepest needs all their wisdom is quite helpless. It is for those who are willing to persist in doing something that is both childish and crucial. Prayer is childish and crucial. And it is what we are to persist in. Much in the same way, communion is much like that, isn't it? How in the world would we ever think that eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little cup of juice would change or do anything? How in the world would we think that the death of one man could change the entire arc of history? Does that make sense at all? That the death of one who was perfect, that the death of one who only lived 33 years, that the death of this one carpenter in the Middle East would have any impact at all. To believe in that is childish and it's crucial. Remember that this table is about the brokenness of Christ. It is that his body was broken on our behalf. 
right? That he said, I will absorb the fullness of your sin, past, present, and future. To believe in that is childish, isn't it? Who would believe such a thing that someone, one man, would take on all of our sin, past, present, and future, and that that would change us in the here and the now? How childish, but yet how crucial. And not only did he absorb the fullness and the weight of our sin, but he also was willing to absorb the full wrath of God on behalf of that. Remember, if all he does is get you back to neutral and you got to carry it from here, we're in trouble. But he didn't get you to neutral. He got you to righteous, which is the shedding of his blood so that you would be covered, so that as you stood before God, he would see your righteousness in him alone. Amen? So the broken body and the shed blood are both very, very childish means by which we could be saved. But as it turns out, they are absolutely crucial. There is no other way to be saved, is there? So Christ, as a point of remembrance for us, on the last night that he was able to spend with his disciples before the crucifixion, said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. He said, I want you to remember what it is that I'm going to do for you, and I want you to do it for as long as I am gone until I return, until you get to dine at the marriage supper with me and all of the other saints. And so we, in that same way, are seeking to be obedient, to do exactly what it is Christ called us to do, so that we could be reminded and our faith would be nourished so that we could do this childish and crucial thing, so that we could live between the now and the not yet in the joy of who it is we are being fashioned into in the image of Christ. Amen? And so, on that night, as a picture to them, so that they would be able to fully recognize, he took just an everyday element. He took bread and he showed it to them and he said, listen, this bread that I'm offering to you, it is, it is my body, it's broken. It's broken for you to nourish you for all of eternity. And so these common elements, while they don't turn into the broken body of Christ, because that would mean he would be scattered all over the world anytime communion is had. No, he is in, sitting at the right hand of the Father, fully bodied, not in part. But what does happen? What happens is the Spirit takes these ordinary elements and transforms them in our hearts and brings us before the very throne of grace to receive what it is that we need in a time of trouble. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how you've prepared for this time for us together. But while we have the elements, they will be passed around here in just a moment. You will get to hold both of them. Take time. Can you confess all the sins that you've committed? Can you get totally clean today? In Christ alone you can. You are. And you'll never be able to confess at all. But you do need to confess your dependence. And so if you are in any way, shape, or form bound by arrogance thinking you don't need the Savior and you don't need these common elements, then don't take by all means. You've got nothing to prove to anyone. You've proved it. You have your reward. 
If you, for any reason, are under the discipline of a local church, I don't care what church it is, I don't care if you agree with it, it wouldn't be a good idea for you to take of this until that's been reconciled. If you are in a situation where you hold and harbor unforgiveness against someone else, now, let me, let me qualify. It doesn't mean, we all have relationships that could be better, right? And some of us are maybe trying to work through that, and maybe the other party's not really working with us. That doesn't mean you can't take. No, that means you need to take. But if you think that that person is unworthy of forgiveness for some reason, then how can you take? How can you take of something so freely given to you when you wouldn't offer it as a priest of all believers to someone else? And so those are the only reasons that you shouldn't take. But if you're a believer, I don't care if you're struggling or doubting this morning, this is the means of grace by which you will be strengthened. So take and eat, knowing that the Lord has provided even before you knew to ask for it. He has orchestrated that communion would be served this day for some reason for some of you, for all of us. So be on the lookout for what it is that God is doing in this moment. In the same way that he took and broke the bread so that we would have our sins forgiven and God's wrath exhausted in him, he took the cup and he showed it to him and he said, this, this is my blood which will be spilled for you so that you would be covered in righteousness so that you could come before the throne of grace boldly. And he said that you should take and eat and drink in remembrance until I come. And so I want to pray um, for our elements and then we will pass them about. Um, if you have a gluten allergy, in each plate there will be a small disc that is in fact gluten-free. The, the pieces of bread that we have are not gluten-free, okay, just so you know. Um, and as far as the juice is concerned, um, yes, we only serve juice at this time. There was a significant reason for that uh, and don't have time to go into all those details. Not theological, but practical ministerial for some people who struggle with some things. Um, we were honoring them. And so uh, it's juice and it's bread and you will, as the elements come by, hold both and we will take both together as family at the end, okay? So let me pray for the elements and if the elders would come forward. <laughs> Father, thank you that you knew us intimately enough that you knew one day we were going to need the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Thank you that you knew us so well that you knew we would need a reminder because we are so easily forgetful. Thank you that you have provided such common elements, such a means of grace that nourishes our faith to help us to remember that we are your children and that this is crucial. Thank you that you have given us a language to be able to speak to you and relate to you and love you in prayer. Thank you for the brokenness of Christ as represented by this bread. I pray that these mirror elements, bread and juice, would nourish your people here today. That it would strengthen our faith, that it would remind us that you love us, that you're in control and that you are returning for us in the name of Christ. Amen.